1: I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, my guest is Sylvia Earle, ocean scientist, explorer, teacher, and advocate. In the 1950s and 60s, she became the first woman to paddle into the world of ocean research, dominated by bearded men in plaid shirts. In 1969, she applied to join a research team living in an installation 50 feet below the sea surface in the Virgin Islands. She was rejected, even though she had logged more than 1,000 research hours underwater, the next year, she was selected to lead the first all-female team of aquanauts at the station. We'll see a little video clip of that later. In 1990, Sylvia Earle became the first woman to be appointed chief scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. She's won more than 100 awards, including a TED Prize and 2014 Glamour Woman of the Year. (Laughter) Over the next hour, we'll explore the health and wonder of the seas with the Joan of Arc of the Oceans. Along the way, we'll include questions from our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Please join me in welcoming her deepness, Sylvia Earle, to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. Mr. Earle, welcome to Climate One. I'd like to begin by citing an eminent scientist uh, uh, named Stephen Colbert who, um, <laughs> who asked you and said about the oceans. The oceans are deep, they are dark, people drown in them, and they are full of sharks who want to eat us. <laughs> so why should a person who's not into the oceans like you are care so much about the oceans? Why do they matter?
2: Well, if you like to breathe, you'll listen up. among other things. Uh, More than half of the oxygen in the atmosphere is generated by little green guys out there in the ocean. They also take up a lot of carbon, which is very relevant to the climate issues that we're here to talk about, in part. So, no water. It starts with the water. No life. Um, 97% of Earth's water is ocean. (laughs) And while we don't drink salt water... It does, well, some of us do a little bit. <laughs> but the water that you see in clouds, it's largely generated out there over the ocean. It falls back to land and sea, regenerating the fresh water that's, you know, only 3% of Earth's water is, is what we call fresh water. And most of that is locked up in polar ice, most of it in Antarctica. So, you know. No water, no life, care about the ocean, you care about living. It kind of connects. And
1: 60 years ago, you started to explore the oceans. You described it as sort of a, a wonderful Sea of Eden. What were the oceans like 60 years ago when you first explored their wonders?
2: Well, I tell people sometimes that I come from a different planet <laughs> and they say, well, yeah, we knew that <laughs> we thought we thought about that. Um, But it was a different planet, and then certainly, although from the surface the ocean looks pretty much the same today as it did half a century ago, under the surface much has changed. In that time, on the order of 90% of many of the big fish have been extracted from the sea. They were so good at taking them, we were getting better and better at, at finding them, extracting them, marketing them, and cooking them, eating them that uh, the ocean, the natural systems cannot replenish at the rate that we're extracting. So that's one thing. We have seen an avalanche of debris, like plastics, enter the ocean. I come from the (laughs) 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 pre-plasticozoic. No plastic bags, no Ziplocs. I mean, Ziplocs are so handy, and, and not just that brand, but we've become... Seduced by their convenience. And I don't blame the plastics. We should look at the mirror and say, well, what are we thinking when we just throw things away? There is no away. In fact, the ocean is by and large the away where a lot of the stuff that we toss eventually winds up. Both the things you can see, the tangible things, but also the things you cannot see, the chemical changes in the ocean itself. So... Look at the trends. Half a century ago, if you take that as a starting point for where coral reefs and kelp forests were, their decline globally is on the order of about half. It's not just warm water, it's cold water systems too. And that's just the areas that we can see. What we're now learning is that uh, corals, Deep water corals, thousands of feet beneath the surface. Not the same species as what you see in Cousteau films and National Geographic films, too. I have to say, as National Geographic Explorer in Residence, <laughs> going to plug my institution. But, you know, the decline is heartbreaking. But the good news is that we can... Some of us have been around long enough to see the changes, the shifting baseline, as some of my fellow scientists have come to call the changes. We're witnesses, all of us are, to the most extraordinary time in all of human history, at least. And the changes are not all bad. Uh, We have seen so much that benefits us as human beings, but... There has been a cost that we haven't properly been accounting for on the land, in the air, and certainly in and under the ocean.
1: You grew up in New Jersey and then Florida. And I'm interested in, so the early days, you, your mother was a bird lady who would take care of, of, <laughs> yes, she was. Of, uh, of wounded animals. She's and, a critter person. And she went for her first dive at 81, is that right? That's right. So, okay. <laughs> No, if you're 81, don't wait any longer. That's what she's saying. <laughs> Get with it. So it's for everyone in the audience, there's still a chance if you haven't taken the plunge yet. Uh, but Tell us a little bit about you know, the, your awakening and wonder to the natural world. You were kind of what we would today call a free-range kid running around <laughs> uh,
2: in nature. I think all kids start out as explorers. I think even all of you whoever you are, wherever you are, you don't lose that that heart of being a kid, asking questions. Who, what, why, where, when, how? That's what explorers do. That's what scientists do. And I don't know where along the way we sort of get off track and, and start sort of accepting what we're told rather than saying, well, how do you know that? Show me the evidence. Or why is the sky blue? That's a kid question. How deep is the ocean? The fact is, we don't actually know precisely. Although, thanks to James Cameron, (laughs) who went down in his little submarine and cruised along taking measurements over a couple of hours has the best measurement that we have so far. But it's still kind of squishy. It could be a little bit this way or a little bit that way. And with Mount Everest, we know precisely how high places on the land are. But anyway, it's just... So kids ask embarrassing questions. Why do we stop? Why do we stop? So I think I had parents who didn't discourage me from asking questions and and often saying, well, let's find out instead of saying, when you don't know something, that's okay. Let's find out. (laughs) Where does this frog lift live? You can see it hopping around on the shore. Where does it live? Well, you know, be an investigator. But there's so many things Uh, back to the climate thing. I I get asked, do you believe in climate change? (laughs) And my answer is, I do not believe or disbelieve. That's not the question. The question is, I look for evidence and you can do that too. Ask the questions. How, why do people think that the planet is warming? Well, they've been taking the temperature of the planet measurements. Here's the evidence. Look at the evidence. I guess that's what I... I don't think my mom and dad ever were trying to coach me to become a scientist. They were just following maybe things that they were curious about themselves. And, and they let me run around on my own, which was great. My brothers, too. So I... It was a different time, a different planet, if you will. I'm not sure I feel as comfortable with my own kids... And now my grandkids doing the things that I did as a child. And it's not fear of getting wet or, or muddy or encountering beetles and earthworms and things of that nature. I certainly did. But it's, you know, I, I have reason to be concerned about my species. And we live in different times. I'd anyway. like to
1: show a clip from a different time. Uh, this is a clip from uh, Mission Blue uh, about the time when you were, were on the, uh, the research expedition. Is it Tektite? Is that right? That's right. Uh, yeah. So let's watch this video, and then I'll have you respond to it. <laughs> now a team of divers will attempt to live for two weeks as quiet residents on the sea floor. Ironically... These aquanauts are not men with extraordinary physical endurance and stamina, but five young and attractive women, the world's first real-life mermaids. Their leader is a renowned scientist, Dr. Sylvia Earle, a marine botanist and an experienced diver. That's uh, Dr. Sylvia Earle in a clip from the ni- 1970s on um, <laughs> kind of breaking into the man's world. That we kind of laugh, kind of cringe there, but I'd like to know about sort of what you encountered there, uh, some of the sexism that you encountered in
2: trying to get into research science. Well, I wasn't trying to knock down barriers. I responded to a notice that was on the bulletin board when I was at Harvard as a postdoctoral student, and still a student. (laughs) And it just didn't say that women need not apply. And some of us did. There were no women astronauts in 1969. There were footprints being put on the moon, but they're all guys. And women who did apply to become astronauts well qualified. But there was just this aura of it's not a place for women. So it was natural, I suppose, that those who were behind the tech-type program that included NASA, included the Navy, included the Department of Interior, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, did not exist when that program started, but it did as as the program came to a a close in 1970. Um, But the applications that came in, mine included, um, were... I guess at least as good and as those of the men. And so the head of the program, James Miller, I think he had a really good marriage and he, he and his mom got along really well because <laughs> <laughs> when the decision had to be made, shall there or shall there not be women? What are we going to do with these applications? They're, they're well qualified. Uh, and he said, at least it is said that he said, well, half the fish are female uh, <laughs> maybe we could put up with a few women and so they did and they more than but you know we thought when I applied I, I applied with some of my fellow scientists and they're all guys it just you know I work in a laboratory I ride in airplanes I you know work men and women work together usually pretty well and it had been my experience although I, I was the first not the first, the only woman with 70 men on a research vessel in 1964. And I, I, at the time, I thought, well, it, some people think this is unusual, but imagine if the guys were asked if they could go to sea with 70 women. Um, would, they, would they object to that? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs>
1: And you've been a pioneer in what we now call STEAM, science technology, engineering, arts, and math careers. Yeah. What do you say to young girls who are considering entering the sciences? Now, there still seems to be some obstacles. The numbers are not yeah. what they ought to be. What
2: What's for for young men and women alike? You know, it's why not go for it? Everyone should become science literate, to be science savvy, to use the capacity. I say, do what you do as a, as a kid. Ask questions. Demand evidence. Don't just take stuff for granted. It's the scientific method. What does a scientist do? You observe carefully. You report honestly what you see. That's the basic stuff. Now there are all these rules and regulations about how you conduct experiments and have tests and so on. But the basic thing, observe carefully, report honestly. That's what scientists do. And the coolest thing of all, about science, scientists, I think, is they're really happy even when something new is discovered, even if it means that something they thought they knew has been proven not to be so. I mean, it's just advancing the quality and the quantity of knowledge, the truth. You're really trying to get at the heart of of what's actually going on. That's cool. I mean, that's how we have progressed from not having a language, not having that you could write down. That's, relatively speaking, in human history, being able to write things down with alphabet, to be able to communicate with numbers, it's fairly new. Generally speaking, we just are the beneficiaries of our collective learning. And what we know today is unprecedented. It gives us an edge. There's plenty of reason for hope, that we can figure things out from where we are to some better place in the future, because we have this habit of of figuring things out. The human mind is a, really a pretty wonderful thing I, I look at creatures when i 'm swimming around underwater sometimes i see I see dolphins, turtles, fish, fish that get up to the surface anyway i 'm sure they have speculated or wondered about stars. <laughs> But we're the only ones who can know what a star actually is. And know what our sun is. To know where we fit in the greater scheme of things. And even humans couldn't know that until fairly recently. Poor Galileo had a hard time. Because he, he really tried to tell people, we are not the center of the universe. Well, there are people now who still kind of think that they're the center of the universe. <laughs> but, you know, here we are. This is a wonderful time to be around.
1: She goes deep. She dives deep into a deep thinker here. If you're just joining us, our guest today, Climate One, is Sylvia Earle, the ocean advocate, protector, and author. I'd like to ask you about the impact climate is having on the oceans in terms of warming, acidification. Uh, what impact is climate having on the oceans, and what can we do about
2: it? I think I should turn that question around and say, What impact is the ocean having on? climate, because the climate is driven by the ocean. No ocean, I mean, take away the ocean, what have you got? A planet that's a lot like Mars, really. I mean, Mars is smaller than Earth, but... Earth is governed very largely because we're an ocean planet. World is blue, to coin a phrase. (laughs) It is. Average depth, two and a half miles, four kilometers. Maximum, 11 kilometers, seven miles down. And the ocean is where most of the action is. It's not just where most of the water is, it's where most of life on Earth is. It's where the greatest diversity of life is. And, but for the ocean, why, how could there be clouds? <laughs> it might be clouds of something other than water, I mean, there are clouds on other planets, methane clouds and things, but you know, we have a planet that is shaped, the chemistry of it, the temperature, the, uh, the ocean is Earth's great thermal regulator, holds heat, releases it slowly, holds cold, releases it gradually. The air is much more, you know, flexible or uh, more quickly responds to to temperature, and so. The ocean holds the planet steady. The ocean governs climate, governs the weather. So we should be asking, so tell us about the ocean and how it (laughs) distributes heat with the ocean currents. Think of this, that most of life on Earth lives in the dark all of the time. And I don't mean just places like Washington, D.C. I'm talking a thousand feet. Underwater <laughs> or more. And the average depth is two and a half miles. How much, you know, we're looking at the skin of the ocean that is illuminated half the time or more, something like half the time when the sun is around. But below that, it's dark. That's where most of light, and it's cold, even in the tropics. You get to a thousand feet. There's a temperature drop of whatever it is at the surface. Maybe it's 30 degrees centigrade. <laughs> And at a 1,000 feet, it may be 12 degrees centigrade. And you get down close to the bottom, it's near freezing, never quite freezing, because if it's freezing, ice forms, and ice is lighter than water, and it comes back up to the surface. So that's part of the miracle of water, that it has all these forms of ice and vapor and liquid. And you see it in, in places like the Arctic, in the Antarctic, where you have all three forms and right there all the time. But, okay, so you asked a straightforward question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and uh, we're seeing more severe weather. Is that impacted by
2: changing ocean currents, rising ocean temperatures? It's important to recognize that Earth has always been changing. I mean, every day, every minute, it's always never the same at any moment as any other moment in the past or any in the future. But the changes generally are gradual. Sort of These changes occur at a stately pace. The geologic changes of continents moving apart, of the gradual ups and downs. We've, I mean, there have been ice ages in the past. They've come and gone. But what we're witnessing now is accelerated warming. We're accelerating the change of... Chemistry of the ocean with the acidification that has happened in the past. There's evidence of this. So, if you, you should ask the question, how do you know? Don't just accept it. Dig for the answers and convince yourself of what's happening right now. And then look for the causes. Why? How, why, why is it happening on, at such a pace? And look at the correlations between what we have been able to measure, providing evidence the correlation between burning of fossil fuels, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, how this is formed along with the, the exhalations of methane creating this blanket, the greenhouse effect. It's great that we have some protective layer that makes it possible for Earth to be suitable for the likes of us, but the greenhouse effect means that we are capturing the sun's heat and holding it and accelerating this warming trend that is mostly captured and held in the ocean. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it doesn't happen like overnight. It's a gradual trend. So we're seeing temperature rise that means seawater as it gets warmer, expands. That's part of the reason that we're seeing the increase of how much of of sea level rise. It's partly the melting of ice, but it's also the expansion with increased warming. So it all sounds like really bad news. Ocean acidification, warming that is changing the weather, changing the climate. We're getting more variation in storms, less predictable. And with the the shorelines around where most people live, the Great Greatest numbers of people are in coastal areas vulnerable to the increased impact of storms as sea level rises and all these things. But the good news, and I think it really is the best news of all, we can see and understand that these things are happening. You can't solve problems if you don't know you've got them. You know, we know that one thing we need to do is understand how our prosperity has come about. How we have used the natural world to fuel ourselves, to, to become the creatures that we are at this level in civilization. Knowing what we know. It's, there's a cost. We'll go back 10,000 years largely as hunter-gatherers. Today, we feed ourselves largely because we've mastered agriculture. So most of the calories that feed us, come from corn, rice, wheat, and to a growing extent, soy. I understand it's about 80% of the calories that people globally consume come from those four basic categories of plants. And all the other stuff, all the animals we grow, all the wild things we take from the land and also mostly from the sea, and all the other plants, from apples to peaches to cherries or whatever it is, that's in that 20% if we want to look at food security going forward, we have to think differently about how we acquire the calories to propel the numbers we've got, let alone the more who are on the way, to be able to avert poverty and uh, hunger and all the other plagues of humankind. But we can do it because we're armed with knowledge. We don't have a lot of time to figure it out I mean, I, I do think that the next decade will be really critical. The next ten years, the most important, perhaps, in the next ten thousand years. The decisive
1: decade. If you're just joining us, our guest today at Climate One is Sylvia Earle, the ocean explorer and advocate. I'm Greg Dalton. We'll be right back after this break.
0: And now, here's a Climate One minute. As Sylvia Earle tells us, change begins when we start to ask questions and take action. For actor Ted Danson, his aha moment came about during a walk on the beach. He was starring in Cheers at the time. Mid-80s, I'm getting paid a lot of money. I'm a little guilty. What do I do? How do I be responsible? Um, I also take a walk on the beach in Santa Monica with my daughters, who are about eight and four, and uh, the sign, you know, no swimming, water polluted. It was a gorgeous day. It was beautiful, crystal clear water. Couldn't go swimming. Started to answer, ask some questions. At The same time, I met a man named Robert Sulnick, who was the head of No Oil Inc. We became great friends. We wanted to continue the conversation. Uh, naively, almost like my father has a barn, let's put on a play. We decided to start American Oceans Campaign, and we did. And lo and behold, it turned into a really uh, small but respected. Uh, ocean advocacy group in Washington and L.A. that then ten years ago merged into Oceana which is now the largest single issue marine conservation group in the world Ted Danson talking with Climate One in 2011 Find out how you can help at Oceana.org Now back to Greg's conversation with her deepness, Sylvia Earle at the Commonwealth Club
1: now it's time for our lightning round, speed round, some Uh-oh. fun. This uh, is scary. Yes or no. Is there a prize
2: for getting a right? Uh,
1: <laughs> questions. Uh, do you use
2: compostable cutlery and cups? No. I use I use real silverware stainless things
1: I wash and use again. I asked because I went into a shop in San Francisco one time and kind of chided the the a proprietor of this healthy place for using plastic. And she said, well, compostable is worse because it comes from corn, (laughs) lots of fertilizer, that creates the dead zone in the Gulf.
2: See, ask questions. Figure out where does that spoon come from and where does it go? And how did it get here in the first place? I love investing in things that you have around for a while. You know, like glass instead of plastic cups. Yeah, or bamboo. Uh,
1: Next question. President Obama has been a good steward of our oceans, yes or
2: no? Um, Qualified, yes. He he could do better, but he, as president, actually did even more than George W. Bush, who at the time protected more ocean than any president before him or any other person on the planet through a stroke of his pen by designating... Um, In over two years a huge part of the Pacific Ocean yay Pacific Ocean (laughs) for for not just protection but full protection where even the fish and shrimp and squids and octopuses are safe. What a concept and Obama now on the order of half um, a million square miles of ocean and that's uh, actually now the UK government has has upped the ante a bit by, by protecting the waters around Pitcairn Island in the Pacific, as well as Chagos Archipelago in the Indian Ocean, expanding the British Empire into the sea. <laughs> 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 but, you know, all nations with a coast, ours very much included, have jurisdiction out 200 miles, and nations are beginning to wake up to the power and, in some measure, the responsibility that that... that brings with it. I mean, it happened in the 1980s. And we're just kind of saying, oh, there's another United States out there that's bigger, the blue country that we need to face up to and think about and maybe do what it takes to take care of it. So, yes.
1: This is a single word answer, or two words. uh, One person in history you'd most like to meet.
2: (laughs) Um, I think... Any kid who's 10 years old today. Cool <laughs> <laughs> most what, a ta- what a time to be 10 years old. Yeah, very cool.
1: Uh, so if you're 10 years old in the audience, you know, come see afterwards. afterwards. <laughs> um, most Americans have never seen a polar bear and never will. Therefore, polar bears are poor symbols of human-made climate change.
2: No, they're good symbols. What do
1: scientists call orange roughy? Slime heads.) <laughs> that ends our lightning round. How did she do? <laughs> and speaking of uh, orange roughy or slime heads, I'd like to talk about diet. A lot of people care about the oceans. They still eat some fish. Do you eat fish? When, if not, when did you stop?
2: Well. As a child, I came from a family that ate a lot of sea creatures. We lived in New Jersey. The fish, uh, fish we called him the fish man, <laughs> He'd come by once a week with his little truck and ice and relatively fresh fish. <laughs> uh, but, and then when I was 12, we moved to Florida. My backyard was the Gulf of Mexico. and Well, lobsters, the spiny lobsters, oysters, clams, fish of a great variety. It just seemed the thing to do, and I failed to do what I'm advising you to do. Ask questions. How old is this fish? What did it take to make a grouper? Um, how many of them are there? Where do they live? How far did it have to travel from the ocean to get to, where, to my plate? And what does it look like anyway? When you see it on your plate, it's just, you know, has lemon and... You know, little green stuff. <laughs> you don't see what these creatures really are. At least most people know what a chicken and a cow, and a pig, what they look like. But the fish, fish, you just look at fish sticks. <laughs> What's a fish? What's it look like? You see goldfish, but that doesn't, that's not a good model for the 25,000 kinds of fish, freshwater and marine that, that exist. What is fish? Fish chowder, catch of the day. The catch is, you don't know what you're eating.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's probably been relabeled by the industry in some way. But I don't
2: eat fish anymore. I know too much. I really do. I know too much about how important fish are alive, like birds are, to the land and the skies above, to the planet as a whole. And there was a time early in the 20th century when a lot of birds were taken basically with the same attitude that we have today about fish, you know, they're just commodities. And yes, they taste good, but a lot of things taste good that I avoid eating. I mean, some people on the planet are fond of eating dogs, but I've come to respect dogs for other reasons, and fish too. Blue carbon, think about that. Just take that little phrase, blue carbon, and go Google it and see where that takes you about the value of fish for something other than just something on your plate, like trees, carbon-based units, capturing, storing, sequestering carbon. These food chains in the ocean, starting with phytoplankton or kelp or other kinds of seaweed going up the food chain and storing carbon in the ocean, then we disrupt those great storage capacity of the ocean to maintain carbon and release it to the atmosphere when we capture them and gobble them up and break those tightly knit nutrient cycles in the ocean that have held the planet steady for lo these many gazillions of years. For people who aren't quite ready to give up fish, is it possible to eat responsibly
1: sustainable seafood? There are some labels out there. Uh, Is that possible to, to eat sustainably? And what about farmed fish?
2: How many hours do you have? <laughs> well but I can be I can be succinct I think that I think that eating wild fish at this point in time if you go out and catch it yourself and you take it home and it it's dinner you respect it you know you know what it looks like you know where it's come from you have some idea if you do your homework about how old it is most fish that you take are carnivores think about the investment that it has taken to make that Salmon that you've just captured, if you can find one, <laughs> California waters. Because they you know, take several years to make an adult most of the fish that we consume. Barbara Block at Stanford will tell you that bluefin tuna take 10 to 14 years to mature. And most of the ones that are taken today aren't mature. But it's years, six or eight years, whatever it is. And halibut, they can be as old as anybody, older than... People in this room, if they're allowed to fulfill their halibut destiny and get to a good old age, 80, 90, 100 years. And so you see a little piece of halibut on your plate. Have you ever seen a live halibut? Big as a doormat and a lot heavier. <laughs> and Well, bigger than six doormats put together. And we just eat them. It looks good on the menu. And is it sustainable? Okay. Probably not. When you look at what we with all of our rules and regulations about how to have our fish and eat them too, it's it's a wonderful vision. And I think if we were really conservative about how many we take instead of taking as many as we can, you know, capture and market, and if we've protected big areas of the ocean where the fish were safe, protect the breeding areas, the feeding areas, respectful of the corridors over which they pass as we have come to be more or less, with birds. But we've so overdone it with wildlife from the sea because of this illusion that there's so many out there. And it's because, you know, the ocean looks the same on the surface. And you can go to a restaurant or a supermarket, and you see the equivalent of eagles and owls and lions and tigers and bears and snow leopards. The numbers are really low as compared to what they were but because we're amping up the effort to catch, we have new methods of finding that didn't exist when I was a kid. And we go deeper, like orange ruffy. OK, 2,000 feet down or more. And and you find them by looking at sonar and seeing the terrain below and little movement around where these this terrain is, and drop these bottom trawling devices. And you take not just the orange ruffy, you take sometimes and often because they live among these ancient corals that may be among the oldest living things, living animals on earth, six, 7,000 years old. And they just get trashed in the process of capturing this little fish that most people never see the whole fish. They see the piece of meat with lemon slices and butter on their plate. And you don't know the real cost. So I, I think that if people really know, if they knew, what it took, and, and the subsidies that now support commercial fishing, they might make the choice that I've made, which is just stop, you know, sustainably. <sighs> what? I haven't even gotten to the... See, I said it's going to take two hours, it's but let me cut through it. Can, can, <laughs>
1: is, is farming
2: always bad? Fish farming always
1: bad? No, or can it I, be mean, done
2: I, I think there's hope with smart aquaculture closed systems, more crop per drop, as they say, with tilapia, catfish, carp, and there are probably others that are plant-eaters. We just haven't been looking very hard to identify, in the ocean, the equivalent of those handful of animals. It's not very many that, that meet the requirements of growing fast, tasting good, you know, and eat plants. Ironically, we're now taking a lot of fish from the sea to feed to cows and chickens and pigs. Not a very smart move, but here's the thing. We think of fish as free. We have an accounting base of zero when they're swimming around in the ocean. And that's false accounting. We have to to face up to the cost of what we consume really is when you put nature on the balance sheet.
1: You're just joining us, our guest today, Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, is the scientist, explorer, and advocate Sylvia Earle. I'm Greg Dalton. I'd like to ask you about a couple of documentaries. Uh, One is uh, uh, the island president, which shows the president, former president of the Maldives. You've currently uh, sort of championed his cause a little bit. President Mohamed Nasheed, we're going to show a brief clip of the former president of the Maldives who's become something of a voice of conscience in the climate community. Let's watch this. If we can't stop the seas rising, if you allow for a two-degree rise in temperature, you are actually agreeing to kill us. So that's President, uh, former President Mohammed Nasheed talking about sea level rise in, in the Maldives. He's currently in jail. Tell us what's going on with him.
2: Mm, boy, a tragic story. I have such respect and admiration for... President Nasheed, I, I I've met him some years ago and most recently uh, was able to actually give him the Mission Blue Award at a conference that um, really was recognizing his leadership and his voice, the, the power of his voice as a leader of an island country. He actually, when he was president, held a cabinet meeting underwater. To just bring great, home the great point, photo. Oh, it was fantastic, it. I mean, and a lot of people kind of suddenly got the point. Well, wake up! Unfortunately, his little island country—it's not just one island; it's, whole, it's hundreds of islands in the Indian Ocean that are like like opals. You look from the uh, from an airplane down at this this beautiful string of of islands. Most of them are not inhabited by people but a few of them are. And it was during a time when he was in the capital island, capital city of of, uh, Mali, uh, earlier this year. He was really ruthlessly, I mean, just not showing respect at all, just thrown to the ground and dragged off to prison uh, on the grounds that when he was president, he... Well, they, they used the term terrorist... Uh, that's not a valid term to, to uh, describe anything that he's, he's done, except that he, he uh, discharged some people when he became president who were kind of angry about being let go and actually put in jail for some of their not-so-savory activities. So they're getting even. The new administration, I guess, is taking action. And, uh, he, but it's, it's an injustice that the world should know about and try to at least get
1: him safe. He does have a celebrity law representation now by Amal Clooney, and, and has some uh, fabulous... Um Western attorneys, but he's still dealing with the courts in the Maldives. The other documentary I'd like to ask you about is Blackfish. Uh, we had John Har- mm. Hargrove here, right. who gave an amazing uh, talk about the emotional, the love for the whales he had and how emotionally uh, and, and evolved the orcas are. So I'd like to hear what you thought about when you, if you saw the film Blackfish. Actually,
2: I have not seen the film, but I've met the woman who whose idea it was, and I certainly know about the film. And like the cove, the telling the story of creatures that people can empathize with. Uh, we are fellow mammals who have social structure and they, they relate to us and we relate to them. And it's through films and stories that we sometimes... Change uh, not through evidence, although that really is the key to whatever change is, is about to happen. Um, it's, it touches our hearts it's, it's, you know humans are you know, we have the human mind, but we also have the human spirit, and, and we are connected in ways that transcend common sense or transcend the evidence and we, so we see, we empathize with the animals and with the people who care about them, and with the when you see a, these very intelligent creatures under circumstances that are less than nice. I, one of the most moving examples of this that I recall was going to a, a place in Hong Kong many years ago. It was in the 80s. There's an open pool that had one orca blackfish and i could see it was just a sort of it looked like one of these nice hotel swimming pools it wasn't interesting in the orca sense at all just painted aqua and no rocks or whatever just a big pool and here was this orca and he was lifting up because he could see the ocean i could see the ocean he could see it but there's all this land between where he was and where the ocean was i mean it's it still makes my <laughs> makes me Mm, feel empathy for that poor creature, and why? Did we, why were we doing it? And that's the question: the why. Why do we do this? You can make a case for saying, and I, I have uh, do. Why do we keep fish in captivity? Well, because I, aquariums are like halfway houses for people and fish. <laughs> a lot of people who never see a fish other than on their plate can see a grouper, can see a shark, can see oh, this great diversity of of life in the sea and not just fish either, but other creatures and but that's really not the point of why they're having these animals, or at least the orcas. It's because they're a great draw. I mean, that's, that has come out loud and, and clear. That, it's business.
1: And yeah. that business has been affected. When John Hargrove, the, the, one of the trainers featured in Blackfish, was here, he told about he was injured one time during yeah. a, an exercise, and the, the orca circled around him in a protective manner and huh. then carried him back behind stage and cared for him when he was injured. Amazing story. Okay, let's uh, go to our audience questions. We're at Climate One. We're talking with Dr. Sylvia Earle, the ocean explorer. Welcome. Um.
2: My question is,
1: what policies, both in the United States and perhaps at the UN, are you spending your time to champion now that we can help support you also?
2: Think of this. Half of the world is beyond national jurisdiction. It's called the high seas. This year, the United Nations, early in 2015, uh, came to a point of agreeing that they would explore having a framework of governance for the high seas that makes possible, as a next step, maybe within the next three or four or five years, establishing large areas of the ocean as protected areas. (laughs) Yay! what a concept. Here's the thing. These are the global commons, these high seas areas. Uh, Everyone, all of you, have a vested interest in keeping them safe. Again, if you like to breathe, think about where oxygen comes from. Uh, now, and, and if you like the, the the processes that shape the world. President Obama once said in a different context that our highest priority must be to keep the world safe for our children. And that means let's we have to protect nature. I mean, that's how I interpret it. He was thinking guns and things, but... you know. <laughs> Keep the world safe for our children. Hold the planet steady. Protect the ocean. I am working to some extent with both the United Nations and with an organization called the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. It's been around for a very long time. And they have a seat at the United Nations. And they speak for more than a thousand Organizations around the world and and more than a hundred countries have representation and the the whole concept here is to identify it one of the goals they have is to look around the world, land and see where are the places that have the magnified importance about protection of keeping the world safe in a natural sense you know the water cycles the, the natural forests and the fabric of life itself, the diversity of life. So I'm really above all else looking, because it's a big umbrella that encompasses the many other concerns, whether it's acidification, loss of diversity, about the climate change, whatever. If we can hold the planet steady by having big areas on the land and the sea, parks, national parks, came into existence the national park system about 100 years ago. And it's taken us longer to look at the ocean, but we're starting to. The United Nations now is really... uh, They need to hear your voice. Let's have our next question. Welcome. Um, Hi. Uh, My name is Claire. And in the next two years, I'm going to be going to college. And my question is, what do you suggest for future marine biologists and environmental advocates to do academically besides just explore and stuff Go get wet. (laughs) I mean, there are many institutions, and of course it's logical that going to a place that is accessible to the sea, or at least to water, (laughs) it helps, but it's not mandatory. But try to get to some place, whether it's within school or on your own time, get somebody to take you there if you can't take yourself, but spend time. Actually, observing the things that you that you're drawn to, and you know, be good at something. Choose something that that you really love, and and be become as good as you can. And it's not necessarily in biology, but it, maybe it's in in terms of you're, you have a good voice. So you know, be really good at, at, with with music or with writing, uh, or if you have a way with words, or with draw, drawing cartoons. Sometimes. Jim Toomey, who's the, the shark cartoonist, he loves the ocean. He's a marine scientist, but he expresses himself in a unique way by having a cartoon strip about sharks. So I, it may sound a little unconventional, but don't just... Yes, learn everything you can. Take advantage of the schools that are there. Devour what your teachers are trying to stuff into your brain. <laughs> That's their job. It's your job to absorb it. But also on your own. F- follow your heart. For me, it turned out to be seaweeds. Hmm. But that has led me to look at whales. It's led me to kind of go diving all over the world because I have a specialty that people, um, they, they want that, that uh, expertise. So, don't yep. let people say you can't do it because you're a girl. <laughs>
1: And and I just want to mention that this girl is going to turn 80 in August. And it's wonderful. Uh, Zeros don't count. It's wonderful to see so many young people in the audience. We'll get a couple more questions here for Dr. Earl. Welcome.
0: My name is Cassidy. and what was your favorite part about the ocean?
1: Okay, and oh. let's have one more from okay. behind you, okay? Favorite part about the ocean?
0: Is there anything that we can do to help?
2: Yay, good question, yeah. So, I love the fact that the ocean is alive. Water is great. When you're diving or swimming or whatever, you're suspended. You can you know, stand on one finger, the water holds you up. You can just be so graceful. And, but the part that really attracted me to the ocean in the first place was the fact that there's life in the ocean. And it's endless. I mean, the mystery. The, I, you know, my, my daughter and her husband have a little company across the, the bay from where we are now. They build submarines huh. <laughs> and robots and, and other equipment for, to explore the ocean. So part of what I love about the ocean is There is so much out there yet to be seen that everyone can be an explorer. And even though you've been to the ocean a thousand times, and I have, you never know what you're going to find the next time. And so what can you do to help? Well, go out there and be part of the action. Go build a submarine and then use it. Um, Or walk along the beach and keep your eyes open. Think about what you think that can make a difference that whether it's writing a poem, some people can do this, but don't just keep it to yourself. Share your view. Use the power of communication that didn't exist when I was a kid, that does exist now, to inform people about what you know or what you care about. Support the idea if you can. Figure out whatever way you can. Uh, Here in California, we're in a leadership role in terms of identifying critical areas and then... Protecting them is a standard that other, other states and other countries could follow. In this country with, you know, support what Obama has already begun with respect to expanding protection for the sea. I call all of these areas, whether it's land or sea, hope spots. Hope spots. Because if we can protect the natural world and the life that's there, it really does provide hope for us.
1: Let's have our next question for Sibley Earle.
2: Um, the tragedy of the commons says that one person has the incentive to take as much out of the commons as they can before the next person gets it. And it seems to me that oceans are the world's biggest commons and that we have nations working uh, for their own best interest at the cost of overall interest. So do you think this is an intractable problem? And if it is not, what do you see as a solution? It's a tough problem. I don't think it's intractable. I think it the solution starts with knowing why it matters. The fact that there are now about a dozen nations, only a dozen out of the 200 or so that exist, are disproportionately extracting from the global commons right now with large fleets of nets and long lines. Some of these long lines are 40, 50 miles long, with baited hooks every few feet. If you're worried about food security, Then, why would you waste all this bait that would, you know, taken together with the thousands of miles of long lines that are out there right now with bait to catch something bigger? I mean, if you really want to, it's food choice that these fleets are after. And they're taking from parts of the planet that until right about now have never been accessed by anybody ever. It's hard to justify this based on need, it's based on greed. And these fleets are mostly subsidized because to get out to thousands of miles away from your home port takes a lot of fuel. And it wouldn't be profitable if you didn't have taxpayer money helping you to get out to where the action is. So, I don't think it's intractable. I think what, it, what ignorance is probably the biggest problem facing the world today. People don't know what's happening. They don't know why it matters. So, it, it's... The question I once had, if the ocean dried up tomorrow, why should I care? (laughs) Well, if you like to breathe, you'll care. If you like to live, you'll care. And when you see what's happening to wildlife in the sea, what we did for centuries to whales, we're now doing to fish. And we're doing to shrimp and krill. They're just treated as commodities. The same attitude we had for wild birds. But can we change? It starts with knowing. And then you can change on a dime. Let's have our last last question for Sylvia Earle at Climate One.
0: Hi, Dr. Earle. Nice to see you again. Uh, I want to bring it a little closer to home. In the last 30 days, we've had 100,000
2: gallons of oil spill down in Santa Barbara, right near our national sanctuary of the Channel Islands. Just last week, we had
0: 100,000 gallons of raw sewage spill into Pacific Grove down in Monterey. And in the last 30 days, we've had four wonderful big whales wash up on our beaches, right here within 30 miles
2: of us. Who's protecting us? Who's keeping an eye on this? Who can we call and say, make this stop? I think the most important person to contact on these issues is the person you see in the mirror. It's up to us to make, have our voices Be heard, now that we know. When some of the infrastructure that was put in place years ago that have led to the issues we now see, this is the cost that we now can see of the prosperity that we have been enjoying. Take action. Use your voice in ways that we're now empowered to do. And I, I think you have just raised your voice. People who may not even have been aware about the whales, are now clued in. Where did, why did they die? Well, let's go find out, and let's see what we can do now that we know.
1: Our thanks to Sylvia Earle, the ocean explorer, scientist, and advocate, for being with us today. <laughs> Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.